0: What's going on guys, so welcome to today's episode. I'm sitting down with Ian Kaplan, where we're gonna be talking about research on back pain and treatment protocols. So first of all, Ian, thank you so much for jumping on the episode. I'm really excited to have you here. Can you just give yourself a little bit of an introduction for those who aren't familiar with you and some of the work you've been doing?
1: Okay, so my name is Ian Kaplan. Um, I've trained as a chiropractor. I have a degree in chiropractic medicine um, but currently I work at hybrid, uh, performance method in Miami, Florida. Um, working on a bunch of stuff related to the, the product, um, the core training and nutrition business, um, and kind of the software it's delivered on. Um, and I also co-authored a book with, with Steffi Cohen about back pain. So I think it's the relevant, uh, thing to this conversation.
0: To, to dive right into it. Can you just talk a little bit about the prevalence of, of back pain and why that might be the case?
1: Prevalence. Um, back pain is one of is one of the most common causes for disability, one of the most common causes for miswork days, and has some of the highest cost of 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 healthcare in the world. It's something like 7% prevalence, meaning like I think that those numbers are old, a few years old now. Uh, just at any one given time, seven percent of people have back pain. Again, those are estimates. Um, I don't want to speculate as to why, because there's a lot of conjecture and hand-wavy explanations as to why. Um, pain is a fact of life, and 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 back pain, you know, particularly can be can be scary and can last a long time. Um, so yeah, I don't want I don't want to make. There's lots of reasons people can assume or can guess based on you know whether back pain has gotten worse it definitely hasn't gotten better um we're, we're pretty confident that hasn't gotten better um uh, you know are we observing it more is it or is it reporting to clinic more I Again, mean, those are hard questions to answer um i think just the plain example is a lot of people experience back pain for many different reasons so so it kind of all gets lumped into this very big kind of bucket of of presentations um, so active people have back pain sometimes inactive people have back pain possibly more often um, people in developing countries have back pain people who, you know in, in highly you know in, in much wealthier countries also have back pain um, so yeah it affects everybody um, so that my question is, my interest is less on why it exists and more what to do about it and those aren't always the same question right? it's not always a root cause analysis that needs to happen especially when causes are complicated or or uncertain
0: and so what are some of those obstacles that you run into when treating uh, treating individuals with low back pain
1: um so i'll preface it that i don't really treat anybody right now i just wrote about it um i don't practice so don't reach out to me and ask and ask me if you know for a consultation or whatever um but working with people who have had back pain you know research being around a lot of high performers who have back pain, who've had back pain who've kind of gone through it um we tend to focus on the obstacles that are related to learn behaviors around pain that that lead to people protecting Right, so some of the some of the things that people need to do to get back to doing the things that are important, like like having a a kind of a positive framing of their of their circumstance, even though it's hard and, it, and it's painful, um, and also getting back into to graded exercise, those we find obstacles to those based on people's fears, their uncertainty about the future, things they've learned, things. They've been told about their pain, you know, by people who may or may not know exactly what's going on. Um, Yeah, all those, all those serve a purpose normally, because there does need to be some protection, right? There is some sort of uh, reduced activity that needs to happen, especially if there is an injury, Um, but we need to, there needs to be a plan back to the previous level of activity um, at some point. And generally we think that is sooner rather than later, um, especially because people tend to be overly protective and resort to overly um kind of overly reduced activity levels, which can then harm recovery in the long term by not reconditioning people back to their, their previous level activity, and then you end up in this cycle where at won't at, at you know you end up you know basically not doing anything and then and at some point in the future when your pain goes away you go right back to your physical activity and you're not prepared um so really think about preparation versus uh, protection and and right and where people are in that kind of life cycle of an injury rather than um you know tissues that are broken tissues that need to heal those might be relevant in part of the picture but it's not those aren't necessarily Helpful or a complete context for a person to to engage in an in, a, in an activity program that will actually help them kind of uh, get back to get back to the things they normally do and prevent this thing from becoming a recurring or, or chronic thing, um, which could happen if they if they kind of uh, fall into this kind of mm. protective mindset. Make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that's kind of interesting to, to notice is, I wrote a review paper, probably about a little over a year ago, on uh, low back pain and effective treatment modalities. Um, and there was a handful of uh, papers that I reviewed. And the one was a network meta-analysis in 2020 by Owen and colleagues. Yes, I know Owen. Yeah. I, I, um, and that was kind of the interesting thing, is this kind of big shift in, in paradigm from if you're injured, probably take it easy, relax, try and avoid pain. Whereas now it seems like people are trying to ramp people up into a more, like you said, graded exposure approach to get them back into physical activity of some sort and then kind of ramp them back up and build tolerance over time. Yeah. What, what was the, the catalyst for, for all of these, this, this big paradigm shift in, in pain management?
1: I think the paradigm shift is that the evidence for the other paradigm was terrible. And that, the be- and that the better the you know the more robust the, the you know the research and you know the more rigorous the kind of the scientific standards the the smaller and smaller effects you saw until you saw no effect and then you had to explain that right you saw a huge you know well controlled you know um kind of multi arm trials they're really trying to isolate the effects of specific treatments and they found no specific effects they couldn't they 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 can't, or if there is an effect, the likelihood that it is large is so tiny that you that you need some sort of, you need to update your priors about, about your, you know, about kind of, you have to update your prior beliefs about what is, you know, what this kind of, what this causal behavior is. So if you think that this specific thing is leading to this outcome, and then you have large populations of people that, 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 um, Fail to, con- you know, right, that reject that, that kind of um, hypothesis, then you have to revise your hypothesis to adjust for that evidence. Um, and the evidence that we saw was that a lot of things tend to work and very, they work moderately well. Time works better than anything else, pretty much. Um, so even when you just wait list people, they tend to get better. So that kind of throws a wrench into people's idea that their specific treatment is the best thing ever. And and then even when you give people a lot of different treatments, they all tend to do pretty well. And then you try to figure out what are the common things in these treatments that actually might be contributing to the benefits. And then you end up having to step back because these treatments are are not, especially of back pain, they're not single mechanism of action. They're not like drugs. They're, they're kind of they're multi dimensional therapies, and it's hard to isolate specific effects. So, you need a treatment model that doesn't really care about specific effects, which is much more about whole person kind of positive patient centered care in, in medicine, which is just like deal with the person in front of you, deal with their expectations, deal with their beliefs, and give them a plan forward, right? after you screen for for serious pathology but that's rare and especially when we deal with active people it's very rare Um, so so yeah so you come up with a model that is much more psychologically informed that is that is cognizant of 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 tissues and biological things but doesn't put them on a pedestal above other things we really put you know social emphasis on a pedestal we care about whether the whether the person will actually engage in this program right, because we find that when people participate in that activity, it's better than them not participating in some activity we think is better. Um, When people, you know, are motivated, when they have high expectations of of relief, that might actually be one of the contributors to to placebo effects and that they actually believe they're going to get better. So we can replicate that without, you know, the side effect of giving expensive, um, relatively ineffective specific treatments um, that might actually have harmful side effects, either you know, physiologically or psychologically, then we'd rather do that because really the the best intervention is the most minimally invasive intervention that gets the me- that gets the the most benefit for the most people. We're talking about population level stuff, um, which is really when you have the conversation about research. That's really what you're talking about. Is really, right? How do we, you know, how do we capture the most people in general recommendations? And then some people will not fit those general recommendations because they're at the edges of the distribution, and then you have to. Those are the tough cases that medical practitioners really have to deal with Um, but right now especially musculoskeletal care people I think people are being over treated and over diagnosed and over medicalized for 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 socioeconomic and kind of physical activity related issues Um, and that is ultimately harmful in the sense that it's expensive it it introduces any treatment that have side effects that have harms or risks of harms that might not necessarily be the, the patient might not choose them if they actually knew the harms versus the the likely benefit. And, and then there's also there's narratives that come with it that may or may not also be harmful for the patient long-term, right? They might adopt a, this kind of fragile mindset that they need treatment, that they need to be fixed, that they need this and that to function, right? And that if something happens, it's because they failed or something's broken, right? We don't know that how much that actually influences certain people because that's a Kind of a subjective thing, but my thing is is why coming from someone who doesn't have an economic incentive to to overtreat and over over diagnose people my as an intellectual pursuit, my idea for the best practice treatment is the treatment that costs the patient the least that gives them the most benefit over the long term right that kind of went on a bunch of tangents but that that kind of summarizes um, the paradigm shift and the paradigm shift is not is kind of not it's it's shifting hopefully but it's not it hasn't taken hold in much of medicine it's only in kind of academic circles it's you know on some on the fringes of people in certain you know types of care models where they can afford to do that um it's more in some countries rather than others um yeah, and it's in some professions more so than others. Um, so I think of it more as kind of a a fringe, but emerging concept in a world where evidence is disseminate, disseminated more easily via like Twitter and open source journals. And people are getting a little bit more savvy about reading evidence. Um, and people can kind of break down silos of knowledge and and really kind of ask better questions if they're prepared to critically appraise evidence but most people are still doing cookbook medicine from you know the 20s and 30s that's actually that was never population based and there was a big push in the in the 50s and 60s to make it more population based you know replicating a push in the turn of the century to make Evident, you know, medicine, not about snake oil sales, right? Not kind of this witchcraft, apothecary, fake kind of, um, uh, it's like, you know, empty theorizing about this, these models about how the human body works very much like, cause that was what it was until the 20th century. It was very non-scientific. It was very people coming up with ideas about how the body should work and then reasoning about treatments based on those ideas without validating that they work or not. Um, right, so I think we're in a cycle of revival of of what it means to be evidence-based and what it means to be patient-centered because um, those are kind of buzzwords, but they have weight behind them and there's places for people to go to, to learn about it, even non-practitioners, I guess, which is which would likely be most people on this conversation. Um, but but yeah, but I think it's it's a lot of work and it's, and it's more about systematic change than about a bunch of research being published, um, which is the hard part. But as active people, we are in a position to take that research to heart and do something about it. People who are less fortunate in the developing world and in, and in communities that don't have access to to a ton of activity, um, are need more help from society, right? And, and are more at risk of of bad of the costs of bad healthcare.
0: Yeah, you definitely brought up a lot of really interesting points. Um, one of the points that kind of stood out to me was just how deeply rooted some of the dogmas around research how tradition can kind of impact the utilization of of different modalities for for treatment and bringing up a different uh, approach potentially can be met with quite a bit of resistance i know that i've certainly communicated with uh, with different clinicians that athletes have been using and they'll just be using let's say manual therapy i'm like are they giving you any sort of exercise to do anything like that no just manual therapy i'm like oh okay that seems kind of strange so then i talk to them and i'll ask them some questions and most of the time they're pretty good but every now and then i'll get someone who's really just hostile and aggressive when i bring up you know other things or ask certain questions and they're like oh you're one of those quacks And i'm like i'm i'm not a quack i'm quite saying that but like you know what i mean if i'm bringing up something like you know the utilization of different exercises or Um, You know, I'm asking them what kind of conversations they're having with with their athlete around pain and what that means and things like that. And they're like, oh, you're one of those guys. And I'm like, oh, I I guess. I don't know what you're going to mean. No. There's quite a bit of that.
1: As a chiropractor, you get exposed to a lot of crazy people. And then they think you're crazy. And then you're like, am I actually the crazy one? Like, am I taking crazy pills? And then you get out into the real world and you're like, oh, no, they're actually insane. and. and they believe crazy things and and for either through force of personality or through shared delusion they they convince patients of their ideas about the body i have no idea i have no idea how it works it really shook me in, in chiropractic school I'm like people do this to people and they have licenses to practice medicine and then they and then they think then they think exercise is a dirty word and they think talking to patients is beneath you and a waste of time, you know, and 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 instead it's all about the delivery of the of the of the the divine treatment that you have been trained to give and bestowed upon you by some messiah like figure and that you're not responsible for what happens after because you've done your like there are crazy things. And, all, all borderline cult things so I tend not to focus on that anymore because it's exhausting um, but for someone who for we are spoiled as people who work with athletes where we kind of all assume that that's like the right thing to do is to when you're dealing with an athlete they get exercise you talk to them right their their psychology is important their optimism about their ability about their body is important um, it's important that they're diligent with their, with their recovery and everything and that they and they voice their concerns um but that's not a given and there's a fine line between a manual therapist like just someone who thinks of themselves as a manual therapist and the clinician who also does the manual therapy you know to make to to calm patients down to make them feel safe to actually you can actually reaffirm people's confidence in their body if you if you give manual therapy in the right context um but if you are you know have some bizarre story about why you're giving the manual therapy then then i don't that's not helpful um it might not harm an athlete they might actually shrug it off or they the athletes can have weird beliefs too and still be fine um it's just a it's just a weird thing to have to deal with when you're like when you're when you have an athlete who has a team i get what you're saying because i've seen it before you have an athlete is a team they have some great people around them especially on the strength coach side and then they bring in somebody who's just a lunatic, you know, and they're like, and they're "Like, how do we deal with this guy? Like, how do we make sure like, or this girl? I was like, how do we, why, is, why are they here? How do we make sure that they're not, you know, doing more harm than good? How do we not confuse the athlete, right? Uh, how do we not send mixed messages? That's a problem I don't know how to solve. Um,
0: yeah, you also mentioned <laughs> something about um, logic and, and making these kind of you know seemingly logical c- conclusions and that's something that i found to be pretty interesting as well just even having some discussions with with people either on social media or you know in person with, with different peers and sometimes there does seem to be like an over application of logic in the absence of evidence right and and it sounds kind of counterintuitive to say that utilizing logic is, is bad and i wouldn't say that it's bad but sometimes you can kind of rationalize the situation and be like, oh yeah, well this makes sense. It's like, well, what makes sense doesn't necessarily mean that it's true, you know? Like, gravity to me is baffling. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you actually explain gravity, you're like, oh, that's fucking bananas. Um, but at the same time, it, it's true. And so sometimes things that you know, seem like they make sense, seem like they're kind of coherent on the surface, when you probe a little bit deeper, you're like, oh, okay, maybe that's not exactly true. Especially when you make some of these like mechanistic claims, right? you see this a lot in like hypertrophy studies where they're like, oh, we found that, you know, this vitamin and this mineral or this specific application of training did this. And it's like, okay, sure. But from a mechanistic standpoint, that might be true. But then let's look at how that actually translates into real world results. And you just don't really see anything meaningful. So I think that can kind of be dangerous when you try and apply things maybe a little bit too broadly or if, if we try and rationalize things sometimes, I think it needs to be kind of overlaid against, you know, on, on top of the evidence to say, okay, even though this makes logical sense, how does this actually like pan out in the real world? How does this actually pan out when compared with what we know about, you know, back pain and communication and individuals like perception of pain and the experience? And I guess this kind of leads into my next question, which would be the, the biopsychosocial model just giving a, a little bit of a background
1: on what that is and how that happens, uh an we'll individual yeah um, so that's an interesting question because I mean that goes back into a couple points is like um, people are great at generalizing that's what that's why we you know it's part of how we learn and we I think we we get pretty good at it because that's how we apply knowledge in one situation to knowledge in another. But that's not a way of truth seeking in the world. That's a way of, of, of navigating it so that you're not constantly surprised. <laughs> and so that you can learn enough to get by quickly. Um, and in the absence of really rigorous critical thinking, that's all you really have is kind of, you know, generalizations, you know, from one situation to another. So you can't really blame people for that. They're using the tools they have to deal with uncertainty, right? So the hard part is giving people different tools and different data sets is really hard. That's why it takes years to build really robust data sets. And we're not very good Bayesians, right, in the sense that Bayesian probability is like your prior beliefs you know, Modify by new evidence should 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 change your posterior beliefs. We generally heavily weight our prior beliefs against new evidence, and we heavily weight evidence that's close to us rather than large amounts of evidence that are distant. So if we see a lot of people far away doing something that's not as powerful to us as seeing one person really close up that we get to see and feel and touch. Um, so that limits our ability to to cut out the noise in our observations. Um, so I think the only thing you can do is, is know that that exists and it's just part of a good education, right? That's, that's well-rounded in some math and some, some philosophy even, um, right. I think you and I would both be biased that even coaches need to be able to read the method section of a research paper, which a lot of people can't, because they just don't have, like, statistics looks so like a foreign language, like, you don't know what a p-value is, you don't know what normal distribution is, you know? Like, the basic language of, of modeling the world in a quantitative sense just doesn't exist for people, right, because they either didn't take statistics in high school, or they, for, or they forgot it, or, or they learned to do normal distributions so on a calculator, never knew what it, never know, learned what it meant for inter, in the real world. Um, so they have no tools, so all they do is is sit and watch a person right, or do a lift or whatever and think about it and think about how it must work in this way. And sometimes that's helpful, I mean, I don't know. That's that's how you generate hypotheses, but then you have to test them. And then people, there's other reasons why people will, will position their hypotheses as facts um, rather than as conjecture or as something to be tested because there's... Again, people want to seem more certain than they are or want to believe in their certainty or don't want to deal with the fact that they could be wrong um, for personal or professional reasons or whatever. Um, so I think it's more about the culture of accepting that uncertainty and empowering people to learn the things that help them deal with it, which is a different type of education than, than sitting around and watching people squat. And then it's, the same, it's almost the same conversation as the medical thing. It's like you can't just learn the biomechanics and the anatomy. That's part of it. We also need to learn these mental models for thinking about right um, cause and effect in the world, right? You need to, you know, have some counterfactual reasoning and not just kind of if-then reasoning, right? It's like what if the effect happened without the cause? I believe that causes the effect. Would I if what if I still saw the effect? Right? How do I isolate the effect? Um, so. Um, yeah. So that's kind of where my head goes with that. I, again, that's, these are all hard, hard problems to solve. And I just think working on them requires a change in perspective for maybe for educators. I hope at hybrid, we're doing a little bit of that. And we can always do it better. I mean, we're trying to do more on the education side. Um, yeah. And I hope, and also the, the point of the book was to kind of do that too, but just to, just to tell a story. A more empowering story and also to tell to give people a picture of the current state of affairs of the evidence without getting too much into the details because the details are well exciting for some are not as relevant for for everyone and that would be the scope of another book
0: yeah no, that makes sense i i it's funny actually because i've definitely found that probably for the last like i don't know a couple of years anyways the thing that i'm really interested in is so not applicable to my athletes you know what i mean it's just like intellectually interesting you're learning a little bit more about mechanisms and you're learning more about like this and it's like keep quiet it's going to maybe have like a point zero 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 one percent You know? yeah and the results you're going to get are from like proper training proper sleep proper diet and then just being in a good headspace and and you know minimizing stress and stuff like that and so learning how to maybe apply like efr training to your biceps or quads like how much of a difference is that going to make? Uh, I don't know, but it's it's definitely. Yeah, so I, I get what you mean about like not being super applicable to, to most people. Um, but that actually brings me to, to another question kind of coming back to uh different treatment modalities and, and the difference between you're talking about kind of a clinician versus a manual therapist and in, in that fine line. Um, so what is the role of, of soft tissue work? What is the role of manual therapy? Uh, and then also just kind of bridging into. Like potentially muscular imbalances and, and motor control issues, and that relationship to pain, and how that enters treated as well, or not but like can be addressed some degree, uh, utilizing exercise and manual therapy. I don't know. Um, you know okay. a lot, but- yeah, it's a bunch
1: of things. So I'm going to tell you my perspective because I don't think it's a right way. It's not a right answer to this. Um, again, knows mostly because I acknowledge that we don't know what's going on. And back to your point about like. A lot of the intellectual development past a very certain point like there's like diminishing returns on like learning and people refuse to believe that for some reason they're like every new paper i read should translate to my athletes and i'm somehow a better coach because i apply this paper to my athletes um i was like no like you might spend 10 years answer getting a little bit better at answering one question which means you might actually just throw out something you did 10 years ago right that's not the point right the point is 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 answering big, tough questions more confidently over time. Um, and the overtime part is the tough part as well. Um, there are industries where papers are more practical, which is kind of more what I'm into now, where it's like, yeah, you know, much more on the engineering side of things. Um, there's like, because a paper was a state of the art model or, 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 or a system and then you're like okay we can try that system because it fits our use case or it doesn't we have to tweak it um but that's not that's not kind of um and also obviously for drugs too it works but but for kind of more open-ended again multifactorial things like pain and performance is much different um but back to the role of manual therapy we address this in the book my bias is someone who doesn't do manual therapy for a living who never, who never really enjoyed doing manual therapy, even though I spent a bunch of years at chiropractic school doing it all the time. Um, I don't think it needs to be like. I know chiropractors are manual therapists essentially. There's like an equality there. Like people think chiropractor equals manual therapist, and there's, I know a handful who don't do any manual therapy. And there's like I just don't do it in practice. People don't come to me for it. You know, um, I, I'm like a pain and rehab clinician or whatever. Um, I just help people. You know with a back pain or or post surgery or whatever. Um, My thing is, I don't want to say I'm against it. I'm saying personally, if I were to continue to practice, you you know, there's a difference between touching people like therapeutically or diagnostically, is a thing, and, and doing manual therapy like for relaxation or for a spa treatment, right? Those are kind of two different things um so i'll stick to because i get like athletes like you know massages and sports massages and they feel better when they're done and it's kind of part of the routine um, i don't like the idea that it's making any permanent change because that's just not that's just not sound scientifically um and you can explain why athletes like it in very different much more easily justifiable terms for manual therapy for pain is different again Hard to justify in terms of kind of biophysiologic terms. People try very hard to do that. And again, the more gross the evidence, the more it kind of falls apart. Um, Grass is a really good example of that. It like, it's like there's some great meta-analysis that are just trash, and then when grassing comes out with one, it's like it looks all right. And then when you cite the same papers, they're citing all the worst papers that, are, that, that make no sense. And they're clearly and they're tiny and they're funded by grassland people. You know, they just make no like the papers that they justify that show some effect. One show very small effects. Two are just the the methodology is bad. Like there's no error. You know, there's there's no confidence intervals. Like it's barely like it shouldn't be published. They're published in these chiropractic journals that have no standards that are likely predatory. Like they're paid for publish, and then they and they hold those up as evidence. So there's a whole conversation about you know about reproducible evidence that we can have. So, like you don't trust evidence just because it's evidence. A lot of evidence is bad. Um, so, but my point with that is, um, there's again, there's a lot of people waving papers around that justify their manual therapy thing, um, but none of those are very good. So, we can say that, but that doesn't mean you can throw out manual therapy as something that's viable. Again, it's the context. So, if you want, so my thing is, while I, I don't think it's necessary in any case. Like, it's not, we we, we can safely say that it's not the magic thing that will get some people better that they've been looking for their whole life. Um, Especially when I have in mind athletes with pain who need to get back to their sport, which again is kind of the center of this conversation. Um, But if you are going to do some manual therapy, you can frame it in in a context of, of showing people what they're tolerant of, helping people calm down and reduce their their kind of threat level or their pain, so they can then do some activity and then build it back up, build themselves back up, so they don't need the manual therapy anymore, right? So it's kind of like it's helping people build momentum and helping reaffirm that that they can tolerate the rehab program, um, right? It's preparing people for that. I think that's fine. Um, some people are even against that, that 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 you can get away without doing that, and that if you're just you know charge people for that, then you, you might as you're just overcharging people. Um, right, but like you can see how it's this kind of it's supplemental to the main thing, which is really this conversation with a person and in in a sports rehab context, the activity program that gets back to their sport. Right? So when the person is just a manual therapist, they are on the sidelines. Right. That was my thing. It's like why do you just want to be like like this kind of ancillary player in someone's care? Like why don't you wanna help, right? Why why don't you want to be their coach? Right, they're the quarterback. Why why don't you want to be their coach as the clinician? Right? And not, I don't know, the yeah. You know, I don't know what in the analogy what would be <laughs> where you would be. You'd be like you know, the guy who 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 hands them, you know, the game ball or something. Make sure all the game balls are are inflated the right amount. I hope that answers the question. <laughs>
0: yeah, it does. It- it's it's definitely like a, a tricky subject and so in terms of getting an athlete back to sport practice and back to competition what might that look like you know not necessarily from like an acute injury standpoint but kind of more broadly speaking so you have someone who's experienced some pain they're coming in they're seeing you what would a, a general progression strategy look like and what would kind of the, the basic underlying tenants look like okay
1: so um, we actually frame this in the book, and we frame it pretty conservatively. Um, my first thing would be, like, how much activity actually needs to be reduced? Can they just slightly modify their activity to tolerate whatever's going on and and let it resolve over time? Because, again, we know time. Again, this is a clinician talking who, like, is confident that this is self-resolving. I've seen it before. That, you know, is know the patient's capable. So in that general, which is most of the time, um, the – um, so the first question is how much do we actually need, need to reduce activities? Like, can we maintain a relatively normal level of activity and just modify some things to make them more tolerable temporarily? Right. And then slowly unmodify those things. If there really needs to be some reduction in activity, like something a little, a little bit more serious, then we have this framework in the book of, right. First deliver a positive experience of movement, which is the Craig Liebenson thing. He says it all the time. I um, uh, which is right. If, if the person is fearful or unable to move in a certain way, get them moving in ways that are not painful, right? That, that they can move, right? And that's both in the sense of like biomechanically, like if a direction hurts or if some specific pattern hurts, right? find ways that, they, that don't hurt. If, if moving in general limits their ability to exercise, find exercises that don't hurt that they can continue exercising with. And that's where you have to be creative. Like there's no reason for people like if people are in an endurance sport or need some level of conditioning they still should be able to do some conditioning like, whether it's a bike or I don't know, a hand bike or you know sitting and you know uh you know and 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 uh, waving their hands i have no idea um there's something people can do to move around or right, do that and then the next thing is great exposures right and then we start reintroducing in safe and progressive environments the thing that hurt right and both at a biological level exposing the tissues to some stress so they can adapt as well as exposing the person to that threatening environment so they can work through it and and de-escalate the threat is really important. Um, I think in general people do that naturally, but if there's something, if there's some some fear of protection lingering, then then you kind of need to address that deliberately, you know, and that's really something for for a coach has to be careful in doing that because there has to be a deep amount of trust that, that the environment is safe, um, which is generally easier to do in a clinic um, or in a rehab environment, like with the dress, like the person in the collar shirt that says rehab specialist or doctor, like where right, that that signals to people that they're in a safe environment, you know, that they've filled out a bunch of health forms and that their, that their insurance is, is, is paying for it like that. There's a lot of kind of ritual in the clinical environment, Craig also calls that the tyranny of the visit, which actually might harm people. That that they're in a medical environment, they're getting medical treatment. There's something wrong with them. But on the flip side, it can make them feel safe potentially. Um, but at the same time, you want to get them to the point where they can feel like they're training around, you know, you know, in ways that they used to train, right? And that's kind of the last thing, which is the return to load. Is like eventually you got to load, you gotta load someone up again, right? in in the patterns that you start right which is whatever is important to them um right and it doesn't have and if it's not important to them maybe you don't have to do that exact thing Right. that's where you can get around Some right. some strength coaches have huge biases about what movements are the best movement that everyone has to do this movement because they know this movement i was like you gotta get over that like there's no one movement to rule them all right unless it's your sport and then you have to do it sorry your device lost its connection <laughs> anyway that was the google home um, but yeah so those three phases positive experience with movement grade exposure and return to loading um, should for an athlete who trains a lot who's into you know who has to load themselves heavy or or, or puts a lot of strain on their body that's generally the, the way we think about returning to sport um, after injury and also like those things can be relatively quickly they can Athletes might have to bounce in and out. They might be, if they have multiple things going on, right, they can be in different places with different issues. Um, And and some people won't go through that whole thing, they just need a little bit of unloading and reloading in in certain ways. I hope that's conceptually a a different model than what people tend to think, and it's actually a little simpler. Um, and it's much, but the issue is it's much more open-ended and specific to a person. But again, probably general approaches, like the fact that it takes a few weeks, is good for most people. It's a few weeks of being mindful, but also positive. Like I get you most of the way there.
0: Yeah, and no, I I think that's a big thing too is the, uh, the volitional exposure to potentially. Like see, I guess seemingly dangerous, not necessarily dangerous, but seemingly dangerous positions, movements, things like that that you were saying, where there is some sort of like fear or apprehension when you getting into them. I think that's definitely a, a really important step because I've noticed it for myself. Um, and, and also <laughs> once I start going into these different positions that maybe cause the injury acutely or, or whatever, it gives them a different sense of like autonomy where now all of a sudden it's like, Hey, you know what? I was really worried about this, but now I'm, you know, lifting 45 pounds on each side of the barbell, doing a deadlift with whatever the exercise is. And then over time, they're like, huh, this actually starts to feel pretty good. It does give them that sense of, of autonomy and, and they can kind of progress into that. And, and that sense of, um, I don't know, capability as opposed to helplessness. Is, is a huge, yeah. huge thing for for injury recovery. Anyways, um, I've definitely noticed it myself. Where you know, especially you go from from a really high level of activity, and then all of a sudden you have, depending on the severity of the injury, you know, you're told to stop. And it's like, okay, I have to stop. Like, you know, like you were saying, I, I've known. I remember when I was boxing, I dislocated my shoulder, and I still went into training. I would just duct tape my arm so it didn't move. And then I would just do the other hand, you know? and and that was really important for me psychologically to get back into it, and really really helped me out while I was doing some stuff to, well, yeah. actually back then I was young, I did, I literally didn't rehab it at all, so I shouldn't even say that. I just kind of let it get better. Um, <laughs> but, Funny how that works sometimes. I was I was like sixteen, so I didn't really know any better. But um, but yeah, I, I definitely think that's a huge huge thing for pe- keeping people engaged, keeping people motivated. And just, uh, you know, actually believing that there is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, because that, that can be pretty debilitating, especially if you are like a competitor, and that's something that's a really big part of your identity, all of a sudden having it stripped away. And you are like, well, what do I do? What's going on? Do I have to make changes in my life now? Um, all, all sorts of things that can be pretty, pretty difficult to manage. And then, like you were saying, that kind of feeds into to the whole trust factor of coach, clinician, um, patient, client, whatever it might be. Uh, that's definitely a huge factor, and even I think even like an adjacent example would be, you know, I've had I've had athletes where during a competition, like let's say a powerlifting competition, I'll be like, okay, here's your here's your next uh, here's your next weight, and they're like, oh my god, I don't think I can do that. And I'm like, hey, have I ever picked a weight for you that you have been able to hit? And they're like, no. I'm like, all right, so fucking get out there and do this, and that like belief hmm. in my level of confidence in them helps them go out there and just smoke it. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, I don't know if they can hit this. Like I'm, I'm yeah. confident, but you know, it's, it's a bit of a toss up. And, but they go out there and their level of confidence is just so high that they smoke it. And you're like, all right, cool. And, and every coach, every athlete has experienced something like that. But then at the same time, I think they kind of downplay the significance of that in, a, in more of a clinical setting where they're like, oh, I'm in pain. Uh, you know, and this person's trying to pump me up. And it's like, that's all bullshit. It's just, you know, huffy- or fluffy mumbo jumbo, and it's like, ah, not really, man. Like, it's, it's the same basic premise in a lot of ways. And so, I think it's, yeah, so, sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, so, like, that, that always comes, my mind that always takes me back to the analogy. I think I've heard John Barari say it. And again, when people ask me, like, what do I learn to become a better clinician slash coach? I'm like, motivational interviewing and all that, like, mushy, like, how to talk to people stuff, right? Because, like, you just gotta, it's really about people. Um, at once you once you get some basics down, and John Berardi always said, um, right, you gotta you know the better coach is is the guy by the side and, and not, not the sage on the stage. So it's like right, you it's it's confidence, it's your confidence in your athlete. It's not their confidence in you as some guru, right? Because when you be when you're the guru, you can't express any uncertainty, right? You can't right. You end up Making them, you know, dependent on you. You, they attribute their success to you, rather than you inspiring them and them maintaining control over their over their destiny as an athlete, right? And that's what empowers them to be successful both in in the performance environment and also, you know, when they're when they encounter a setback, right? Because they can't turn to you because you don't actually have the answer. You can pretend you have the answers, right? But you need them. You need them to have confidence in your optimism for them, right which is different than them having confidence in whatever explanation you have which sometimes works but it, but when your explanation doesn't pan out because it has because it because it, it falls apart when you make some prediction then you lose trust um
0: yeah so yeah it's a really important distinction actually and it kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier just about kind of acknowledging the limitations of, of the available evidence right now. It's like, ah, oh, we kind of think it's because of this, and this is likely what it's been in my experience. However, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, I think that does go quite a long way to kind of instill a little bit more confidence because they're like, oh, this guy doesn't seem to be very ego-driven. He seems pretty practical and pragmatic about, you know, his his recommendations and his treatments and things like that. Um, I wanted to touch on a couple things real quick. Uh, just before we kind of run out of time, I wanted to... Ask about pain during the rehab process, because I have seen some research that shows that individuals who experience some pain during the rehab process actually see better results. Yeah, and and I wanted just to get you to kind of touch on that a little bit, so people kind of have a better understanding of why that is and what that actually means.
1: Yeah, I mean so. You know, the the evidence that I've seen over the past couple of years is, is back and forth, but there's not good evidence to suggest that no pain during the rehab process is a goal. Make That makes that makes any sense as a goal. So the idea is, if there's some pain, it's not the end of the world. And the side effect of, of pushing into some pain is you get all that graded exposure. You get to load people heavier. You get to show people the other side of pain, that it isn't a disaster, and that it's not associated with harm, um, that it is just a, a learned response. Um, so some pain might, right, the, the experience of pain might not help the rehab process. It might be the fact that the, that the pain is associated with some behavior that is more productive, the fact that people are actually pushing themselves um, and, not, right, and not under rehabbing. Um, and also the population, it's hard because those populations are different, you know, that's hard to generalize those results. But the idea generally is don't be afraid of some pain in the rehab process. That's why you also have this pain traffic light thing, where like, you know, there's green light, just zero to two out of pain, like that's fine, right? You're gonna if you're if you have some sensitivity, you're gonna feel it, but if it's three to five, where you like kind of feel it, but it's not really affecting your movement, but you're kind of worried about it a little bit, um, but it doesn't change, and that's a yellow light, and that's actually kind of just proceed with caution, we say, and then there's like, yeah, you know, when it gets, when it gets to the point where you know it's affecting your movement performance significantly and it might be getting worse or it causes a flare up the next day. You're like, okay, that's where you cool it up. You cool it, you know, down for a couple days, you know, make, you know, maybe kind of, kind of work your way back to that over a, a longer period of time, but that's the kind of stuff you want to, you it would be a good idea to avoid, right? You don't want to just like give yourself flare ups all the time because pain during exercise is good. Um, so I hope that makes sense. So it's a different relationship with pain. This also kind of goes back to everything we're talking about, right? Any pain is not associated with it, with, with injury or damage. Pain is not, um, it's just as a, as an experience is just not an adequate kind of signal from, from the body saying it's injured, right? If it were, then none of our pain would make any sense because we're, we experience many kinds of pain all the time. And we and we experience it at different levels depending upon our stress and how tired we are and what, what other things we're thinking about. And right? Like pain during boxing is different than pain when you when you step on a thumbtack. Right? That, so how is how is pain perfectly calibrated to sense your level of injury? Right? Um, all right, so, um yeah, so I hope that I hope that helps. Pain is, right, pain is, I think we, we say in the book, pain is a guide, right? Um, it's not necessarily the enemy and it's not a zero tolerance thing. Um, and I don't know, I, I guess clinicians still say that because I don't know necessarily where that comes from. And that kind of goes with the thing of, oh, stop doing anything that hurts forever as as advice from a clinician, which we know is is ridiculous. And whenever an athlete hears it, you, you always get the same thing of, absolutely not, this clinician doesn't know anything, I'm going an to leave, and I'm going to prove them wrong. And a lot of times that works. Um, and that's the classic story. Um, so I don't know why clinicians still say it, other than they're just not trained to say anything differently. Um, I mean, I've been around clinicians who said it, and then I would pull the person into another room and say, don't, don't you know, continue doing what you're doing. You know, it's fine. You know, um, yeah, I think it's just uh, it's all part of that change in perspective about about um, pain and I don't want to be super pain sciency um, as a buzzword but we just need to you know reframe what pain in the context of injury actually means and how they're related and how they're different
0: we talked a little bit about some of the mistakes that clinicians make in terms of how they're framing things to clients the potential of you know, overutilization of manual therapies and some of those things. So, from a, from a patient's side, what are some of the things that they do that can be potentially detrimental to the rehabilitation process?
1: Oh, I mean, that's tough because it's, it's hard because the, what the patient should do is, is probably get multiple opinions right? Because the hard part is, I want to say, do what the clinician says and don't just like do whatever or don't brush them off. Like, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to do what I was planning on doing anyway. It's like what was the point of the, the encounter then? Um, but on the flip side is that you could do everything a clinician says and it could be mostly unhelpful. And, <laughs> and it's just the clinician you went to. So I think people, the standard advice for working with clinicians is get multiple opinions. Because when you do, you see that everyone has a different opinion. Right? And then you can try to figure out whose opinion you trust more, um, and or if there's common things people are saying that th- that you then think are those are the important things, and then actually do those things rather than either doing everything to the T a clinician says because they're your buddy's friend or they're the first one you googled or they're the guy at the gym, um, uh, and if you tell a clinician, hey, I'm gonna get multiple opinions. If, if they don't like that, they're a terrible clinician um, and that means you should leave right That's just a great test of like whether someone is confident in their ability and if they know what's best for patients or they're actually working in patients' best interests right if they're not trying to lock you into something so that's my test for a clinician I think that's that's the main thing for me because I, I wouldn't want the like I don't want to assume that the patient will do all this research and like be super diligent and think deeply about right the 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 state of the evidence and what the best practices are like they just need some help and they need a guide and the hard part is finding the guide you know that's right for them Um, and then they need to do what the guide says Um, but for people doing it on their own um that's all different conversation um which i would then focus more around the fear thing which is like which is like what why, like just asking yourself why do you, where where you have certain beliefs about your pain you might be rejecting that like yeah, and they have certain beliefs about like what you need to do to be a better athlete or what you need to do to get back to where you are like how are those in conflict was like what's really driving your behavior like your decisions around how to get this thing that you're dealing with better like and is that helpful or even healthy Like, are you a persister or a protector? Like, are you just like fighting through, you know, not acknowledging the fact that there's something, something might actually be wrong or something might, or something might require some attention? Or are you like hyper vigilant and focusing on every little thing because it could be like that injury you had in high school, you know, that took you out for a year? And um, so I think just just the awareness is is the starting point for most people because then they would just moderate their decisions a little bit um yeah beyond that it gets a lot tougher but in general in general terms that's where that's where i would tell most people to to not be idiots
0: (laughs) yeah no i think that's great advice especially seeking counsel from from a handful of different sources because like you said it'd be pretty eye-opening um so we're coming up on that hour mark i I don't want to take up too much more of your time can you Share just where people can get a hold of you, where people can find you, and also maybe some some information on how they can get your book.
1: Um, so you can get a hold of me on my Instagram, Kaplan um, Fitness Hybrid. If there's a you know on a link to this, we can find a link to it. Um, if you want to get hold, of, don't get a hold of me um, for any consultation or for any treatment. I don't do that. If you want to ask a general question, I can answer those. Um, I can maybe direct you to someone who I think would help if you really want treatment and don't know where to look. Um, uh, yeah, and you can find the book at highperformancemethod.com. There is a link to Back in Motion. You can download it. You can buy it from us there. We, we will ship to you wherever you are um, if you're interested in learning more. So, generally, when people ask me questions, they've already read the book, but if you want, if you have questions about anything we talked about, a lot of it is covered in the book in in, in a little less than two hundred pages. So it's not like a crazy read. It's accessible to anybody, even if you don't have a medical background or none, or even if you're a coach. But hopefully, there are bits that are that are helpful, even if you are a clinician or student clinician or a coach um, looking to get better at helping people deal with their their pain within your scope of practice. Um, yeah, other than that, um, I work mostly on software that helps people exercise now, so it's a little bit different.
0: Awesome. So all of that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes. Definitely go give them a follow. Um, also, make sure you check out Hybrid Performance. They're also putting out a lot of great stuff on a regular basis. And then also make sure you check out that book. Uh, Ian and Steffi have been putting out some really, really great information. And uh, I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but I do plan on getting it uh, once I have a little more
1: time. <laughs> you've read all the papers that we use
0: yeah yeah well I I actually um I saw your your presentation so I gave a presentation at KEW as well and so then I watched you yeah so that was one of the reasons I was like oh that's kind of cool that's actually how I found out about the book um yeah it was a really great presentation but uh yeah thanks so much for jumping on here man It it was great chatting
1: yep thanks for having me I appreciate the conversation